0: the Urban Planners Podcast, hosted by Gigi the Planner. This podcast is about all things urban planning related and otherwise. In this setting, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the planning field. We'll even delve into some very controversial topics involving the role planners have to take in their everyday lives and jobs. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. This This is Gigi the Planner.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of the Urban Planners podcast. Today starts the first of my Black to Speak Out series, and I will be interviewing Tiara Mack and Tiffany Ann Taylor from New York. And we will be talking about advocacy and planning. Hope you all enjoy. Welcome, Tiara and Tiffany, to the Urban Planners podcast. You guys are the first two interviewees for my new six-week series called Black Urbanists Speak Out. I decided to have this series on my podcast to discuss how we as Black urbanists can have actionable solutions as it relates to unrest that is currently plaguing society. So before we jump into the meat of the conversation, please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. What is your planner's story? I know everyone has one.
2: Sure, I can go first. Hi everyone, my name is Tiffany Ann Taylor. I am Deputy Director of Freight Planning Programs and Education in the New York City Department of Transportation. My main focus in urban planning tends to be transportation, um, but also economic development and emergency management. In my volunteer time, uh, spare time, I am also the co-chair of the uh, American Planning Association's New York Metro Chapter Diversity Committee that also goes by DivCom. My name is Tierra
3: Mack. I am currently a policy advisor at the Department of Small Business Services. I graduated from Hunter with a master's in urban planning, um, certificate in GIS. I ended up, she wanted us to tell our planning story. My planning story is really cool. Um, I started my program at the University of Buffalo. I didn't like it because it was really theory-based and I had just been planning in the garbage. I moved to New York, and it was a September night. I was coming home from Trader Joe's, and I got to my train station, and the elevator was closed. So it was three people that were in a wheelchair that needed to go upstairs, and they couldn't go upstairs because there was no elevator, and they couldn't get back on the train because the next five stops, which so happened to be in a predominantly Black Brooklyn neighborhood, the next five stops from the three line, they don't have an elevator that any of those stops so they couldn't even get on the three and and just go to another train station and get the elevator and get the bus not that they should have to do any of that and they couldn't go back because they were at the at the train station we were at you could only go it's one platform going in one direction and then the train goes to like get cleaned out and all of that at the next one so i waited i'm like how does nobody was going to help them i went to the train group i said it's three people in the wheelchair that can't get upstairs what do we do so they was like, we're going to call the fire department. So the fire department literally has to come and get them. And I was just like, and then I started writing in the air. I'm just like, this is ridiculous. So I so happened to Google the next day. Well, my friend was like, why don't you go back to planning school? Because I was like looking at um criminal forensics because I wanted to do like, I'm good at computers. So I was like, I'm going to just go back to grad school, but I'm going to go for forensics. I was working as a paralegal at the time. And um, so I was looking at John Jay and my friend was like, well, why don't you just finish your planning degree or whatever? And I'm like, oh, I hated it, blah, 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 blah. So happened I Google and Hunter was having a open house like the next night. So I went to the open house. Applications was due October 1st. It was like September 9th or something like that. But so everybody that was at that open house was mainly applying for the spring. And I was just like, you know what? Um, yeah, it was mainly applying for the following fall. And the spring is kind of easier to get in because they don't have as many applicants. So I applied for the spring. I got in. And then I graduated. I started February of 2016, finished in 2018 because planning school is long. Um, Even though I brought in 12 credits, (laughs) I still, still, but then I wanted the GIS certificate, so that turned into a whole other set of credits that I needed. And that's my planning story.
2: Yeah, so Gigi, I forgot to completely answer your question. (laughs) Tiara is right. just got a little bit nervous. My planning story, I think. Not I think. I'm confident that, you know, many planners of color, um, I think black planners in particular, often are not as familiar with the profession as early on as their white counterparts. And I definitely fall into that category. Uh, I did not know that urban planning was a profession in itself until my last semester as an undergraduate. And that's really interesting because I'm originally from Long Island and I'm from a town that's two towns over from where Robert Moses is from. And there is a life-size bronze statue in his name. So at the very least I should have at least known Robert who I knew who Robert Moses was, but didn't really understand how that did or didn't relate to planning. I studied government and sociology as an undergraduate. It wasn't until I took that class in urban sociology where I learned more about cities essentially as a living and breathing organism, how they grow, how they die, how they widen, who gets to come in and out of cities, and I think also what are some of the tenants, so to speak, um, of urban planning. But at that time, I still didn't want to be a planner. I was more so set on perhaps doing some type of law or something else. I worked for a few years, and then I um, read some books and finally did decided that like this is not really what I want to do. I said, let me go back to urban planning um, as an idea. started researching and realized that I could get a degree at a school in New York. Once I got to graduate school, I hadn't decided what area of interest in particular. But Tiara, you sharing your story actually really resonates with how I found transportation. In my first year, uh, we had to do like MIDI studios, like a shorter version of a full-length studio course. And they separated us into different groups. And our study, area was a neighborhood um, in the South Bronx along the sixth train, which is an elevated section of tracks. And I was put, interestingly enough, in the transportation group. And that neighborhood that we were studying, the sixth train was the only train that went there. This was a time before green cabs were a thing. So it was only black cabs, yellow cabs, very rarely visited that area. That's a familiar story. And I thought the same thing. This elevated train line is two flights of steps up. There is no elevator here because that train line is old. What were to happen if I was trying to Climb those steps and I was in a wheelchair. Well, what happened if I had a stroller to push? Well, what happened in the snow? Because also people have to wait, it's an open air train station. Just thinking about that. And then in doing the site visit, being on the ground, thinking about how the pillars that supported the elevated train dissected the roadway below so you had a two-way street that was essentially a four-way street but interestingly enough the bus stop was all the way on the sides of the street adjacent to the storefronts if you're waiting for the bus you can't see it because The pillar supporting the train is in the way, and you basically have to step out into the middle of the roadway to see if the bus is coming. This is before GPS and software that lets you know when a bus is coming. And so just thinking about how dangerous is that if I'm somebody waiting for the bus and I'm actually standing in the middle of the street waiting for it, I'm standing in open traffic. And so realizing in that study group that I was particularly interested in transportation is really my story.
1: That's really unique hearing your guys' story, especially the fact that you guys are from New York and I'm from South Florida. And just the areas are vastly different um, as it relates to you all using your public transportation to an extent that you do, unlike South Florida. So I think that was a very unique take and me listening to you all. So Tiffany, you briefly mentioned about your position as the co-chair for the Diversity Committee in New York. Please speak about your work in that position and what types of things you're advocating for through the committee.
2: Sure. So I was brought on as a co-chair in 2015 to help revive the committee. And at the time it went dormant. At the time it had a much longer name. It was the Ethnic and Cultural Diversity Committee. Um, my co-chair was Tierra Tara Christie. Um, she worked for HBD at the time, ta- Housing Preservation Development at the time. We brainstormed and thought the very first thing to think about is what could we rename our committee? Because since it's gone dormant, the definition of ethnic and cultural diversity is, is very different. And so we were able to settle on DivCom for short. The committee, we do a number of things. We're really focused on professional development. Um, we really wanted to serve as both a resource nationally and a resource locally for folks um, in terms of sharing information, access to networks of more planners of color, more planners from underrepresented backgrounds. We wanted to be a space that also allowed for more socializing, more in-person networking. And we just, we were, you know, also interested in international perspectives as well and um, wanted more collaboration. And we wanted a space and we wanted to be amongst people who recognize the intersection of our work. You know, I feel like in planning school in particular, you can be so focused on one track. In some schools, you even have to make, you know, declare a major, so to speak, that you forget that there's so much intersectionality in our work. And so the committees really focus on a number of things. We do social events, like we do sponsored happy hours, and we do community volunteering events, and like for Earth Day example, where we're painting something or helping to build something. We sponsored mobile tours and the like, but more intently, we usually We have a smaller event in the spring of a calendar year, and then we have our larger conference towards the end of the year, and I'll speak about that briefly. Usually the event in the spring is specifically focused on professional development. So we've had a session on increasing representation of underrepresented planners in planning schools, um, we've had a session on MWVE businesses. We've had a session on what are the social and political costs of speaking about equity in your work and given different perspectives from our different panelists. But what's become more so the crown jewel in our work is the creation of the Hindsight Conference. Um, and that's a conference that's held, um, this is now going to be the fourth year, actually, where it's focused on equity as a lens within urban planning instead of being a checkbox on a form. And so usually every year we pick a moment in history and look back on it and say, in hindsight, what has the profession learned since then? What has it gotten right? What has it gotten wrong? Where is there room for improvement? The first year in 2017, we looked at um, Buchanan v Worley, which is denying zoning based on race. That was the 50th anniversary or 100th anniversary of that. The second year was um, looking at the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. The third year, last year, there were many anniversaries. Um, So we chose three. We chose our 50th anniversary of the Stonewall uprising. We chose the 100th anniversary of Red Summer of 1919. And we also looked at the anniversary of the first enslaved Africans brought to Jamestown last year. And so the focus of the conference is not just who is in the audience, but our main concern is who is actually on the stage. The conference is born out of the fact that every time I went to an urban planning conference, I was really frustrated by the fact that I had very little representation in terms of presenters. They usually weren't as young as I am. They weren't as black or brown as I am, and they often weren't women. Um, And it was really frustrating. And so we said, What is it that we can do to get the people on this stage that we know are doing great work around the country? And so the way that our request for session proposals is written is we say, tell us why your session idea and presenters are diverse and inclusive. Is it the diversity in sectors? Is it the diversity in jobs? It's actually open to everyone. You don't have to be an urban planner to attend this conference. And I think that's actually really important so we can learn from each other. Um, Is it your age? Is it the amount of time you've been doing this work? Is it your area of expertise? And then what are the topics? And so, and where are the intersectionalities within those topics? And what do you want the audience to learn? And so it's been a huge success. The first year, we were seriously expecting like 50 people. And we were going to be so excited about the 50 people. In the first year, we had over 400. And then last year, we broke 600. And it is something that we've had folks from other states come both in person and present virtually. We've had folks from other Countries attend as well. And it's really just a space that's focused on inclusion, equity, access, even down to the vendors. All of our vendors are MWBE. We usually focus that the keynote session in the beginning is. Typically, women of color. um, Last year was mostly women of color. We're very intentional. And so by creating those spaces, our committee has been able to create a safe space within the profession and has allowed us to be a resource and a place for our folks to look to us, both for help and for support.
1: Awesome. So I heard about the hindsight Conference and wasn't fully knowledgeable of everything that you guys provided over the years. And I think it's based on what you've told me or telling me right now is that it's been a huge success. And uh, one day I do hope to come. It will be really fun to come and see what it's all about. Yes.
2: Stay tuned. There's more information coming this month about it.
1: Awesome. So TR, I'm aware that you were part of the panel back in 2017. What other ways have you utilized your voice in the advocacy and equity realm and planning. Uh, first, I want to just say thank you to
3: Tiffany and, and
0: Gigi for putting on
3: um, the high side concert, every concert. Oh my goodness, the panel, but it felt like a concert when I was a a panelist and, and just being in the room. It was so much power. It was just like really true to power in that moment. Um, and anything that GiveCom puts on for the planning profession is amazing. Gigi, you have to come visit us in New York so that you can come to some of the events. But anyway, I was a, the reason I ended up being a panelist is because I was an intern at 596 Acres, which was formerly, a um, they did a lot of land access support. So a lot of city owned, it used to be more city owned land, not so much anymore, but it used to be city owned land and it would just be in neighborhoods that would play it for urban renewal. So mostly in black and brown neighborhoods, it was all the city-owned land that was just vacant and left there. So 596 Acres started doing land stewardship programs in which they would advocate on behalf of the community to actually use that land for a community garden or to do outdoor yoga, just transfer it so that it could get transferred to the parks department so it could remain city-owned land so that it's not now going to be developer-owned land, which happens to a lot of the city-owned lots across the country. This isn't just unique to New York. So that is how I became a panellist. So one of the ways that I have used my voice was so outside of helping communities get access to their land and get it transferred back to the parks department. Another project that I worked on at 596 acres was actually going into our database system, which is called Acres, and that is how that is like our property role. So everybody that owns a house, it gets recorded in Acres. You take out a mortgage, you get recorded in Acres. I had the skill set. I had the skill set because I was working at 596 Acres. And I was even able to parlay that skill set into working real estate development as a project manager at a small development firm for a little while. So I used all of that knowledge I acquired at 596 Acres, worked with them on another project called the Dollar Lot Project. And that is when I went into our asset system and I looked at all of the sundry miscellaneous for all of the city-owned land that was sold under our current administration to private and nonprofit developers. And then just went through it and did an analysis of what did those developers commit to so did they commit to affordable housing is it going to be support services because you could find out a lot of that information online and you could find it out in the sundry miscellaneous so that's one way um i'm also very big on advocacy like in the workplace like i'm not an EEO representative but i do believe in using my voice to speak to systemic oppression i think one of the things that we encounter as black hermitists or as black professionals abroad never it's, it's sometimes being okay with being the Black voice, and then other times, like, who want? that's a lot of labor to be the Black voice, right? So what I've been doing is just framing it as I'm not speaking for all Black people because we are not a monolith, but I am speaking to systemic oppression and how this impacts our work. So that's another way. Um, I work closely with the, my, I live in a 24-minute building in Crown Heights, so I'm constantly, in. A, most of my building is elderly people. Of color, mostly black and brown folks, mostly black folks, up and they're elderly. So I do a lot of just like supporting them. Do you need me to carry your bags? Like so, that's just like one thing that I like a very small thing, but it's it's something that's near and dear to me because again, I'm a planner, and the health of your immediate community is is the health of you, right? So I don't ever want to see my neighbors struggling, you know, with their bags getting in the building, etc. Our when, and what else I've discovered is like living in proximity to blackness. So, like, I'm a black woman and you know, I have education and I make a certain amount of money. But because I live in this 24 unit building and it's owned by a certain set of slumlords, <laughs> they cut the hot water off on us. They don't always take the garbage house. So, I'm always advocating on behalf of me and my build, my neighbors, because you know what, we're not leaving. We're not leaving. We, we made this happen, but you're not going anywhere as black people. Brown Heights. And that
1: is like really what one of my main priorities is at this moment. Awesome. I love it. So I want to talk a little bit about your jobs and how you guys use your voices in your current jobs. So Tiffany, you're the deputy director for New York Department of Transportation. How does your job intersect with your passion to push for equity in the planning field?
2: That's a good question. This is the first time I've worked in freight. Um, I typically work in uh, passenger transportation, and I say that because Freight in itself is an underrepresented conversation as it relates to transportation planning. Um, and where that intersects with this conversation is we have to think about, well, where are trucks going to and from? What are those neighborhoods look like? And who lives in those neighborhoods? And how are they affected? So in my umbrella, in my portfolio, I'm responsible um, for truck safety and compliance as well, education as well. And so with that, unfortunately, also comes the conversation about fatalities um, and also the conversation about high asthma rates um, and where do truck routes get to go and where don't they go and so the conversation or the intersection of the work that I'm doing and the neighborhoods I'm serving is on my brain every single day and so what I'm finding is because freight planning is not necessarily represented in transportation planning at large And I found that at least in my experience in planning school, freight planning wasn't even a subject. We have to think about, how history should or shouldn't repeat itself. We have to think about who has been historically boxed into neighborhoods. We have to think about what neighborhoods have been disenfranchised by the decisions that the government makes by what my agency makes. And it's often hard to do that because when I'm planning, I am often the only Black person in the room. I'm often the only person of color in the room. And so How do you even have those conversations with folks who may not even have this history based on their personal experience or based on the fact that their academic education did not teach them? And so where I find myself is really advocating for more voices in the room, for more uh, representation in hiring, for more representation in promoting, and definitely exposure and in-person networking. I think that working in government in particular, it's not unique to your government, but working government in particular, the system itself is designed to be very siloed. So I can sit next to an entire group of people working in the same neighborhood, but our projects and our meetings don't intersect. So anytime I have the opportunity to introduce folks to one another, I'm actively doing that, especially if they are another black and brown person, another young person, like you need to know so-and-so in bikes. You need to know this group in strategic planning. You need to know so-and-so in our, our traffic engineering and analysis group, because physically making those connections in the office is just as important as on paper. I think also just taking any opportunity to get exposure in the best possible way. So I'm in a unique situation in which my department is actually mostly people of color. Um, my direct supervisor and supervisor above that are actually both two Black people. That's very unusual in transportation planning and definitely unusual in freight. And so because freight is this unique space, we get to stand out in general because we are there to talk about freight. And then when they see a Black person, when they see me, a Black woman walking through the door, I'm definitely going to stand out. So opportunities to present my work to ask the tough questions to be on panels and ask well who else is going to be on the panel what are the other questions that you're going to be asking where's the conversation about the people in this situation and then also questioning what doesn't feels right When you say safety, who are you talking about? When you say this truck route needs to be moved, why? When you say you need to respond to this community in in 24 hours, please tell me why that is, when that's not the case necessarily across the board. When you want to add a new project to this neighborhood, why does it get it here and not get it over here? I think just being in the room, being able to ask questions and being able to, to push the needle is also how my work intersects in this conversation as well.
1: Well, I never really, I don't think I've ever really heard of freight planning particularly. I, you know, of course I know about transportation in general, but yes, that's very interesting that you're into that. And to bring things into a little bit of perspective for people listening who may not be very familiar with that, um, just think about, you know, large semi-trucks driving through your neighborhood. Like, would you really want those type of vehicles driving through your neighborhoods? A lot of times when I go to my local city council meetings, People are complaining about things like that. And unfortunately, that happens. Um, I know there are some, you know, regulations put into place that certain semi-trucks don't come through the neighborhoods. But unfortunately, that happens in in our cities, especially low-income cities.
2: Yeah, and it's not just that. Um, I think using what has happened during the pandemic is an even bigger example. So in my opinion, freight is a system that's designed to be invisible. So we're actually really trained to not notice it until things show up at our door until things show up at the supermarket. But because people have been quarantined and have now turned to purchasing things online, right? Even things that normally we would just walk to the store or drive to the store and go get, we are getting more and more packages. Um, and we know for sure in New York city, which is, been the epicenter, unfortunately, of the pandemic um, in America during this time that the switch from commercial deliveries to residential deliveries is completely reversed. There's more residential deliveries now than probably ever. And we know from talking to our partners like UPS and FedEx and DHL that the number of deliveries during this period has been higher than it would normally be during Thanksgiving and Christmas time. So that's the level of freight activity that we're thinking about. So, so now not only are we dealing with where can large semi-truck tractor trailers go but where can also the sprinter vans go what happens when freight is now coming by a minivan or by a sedan? What about cargo bikes? What about e-bikes? Where are the opportunities for there to be cleaner modes of transportation? Can we even take stuff off of trucks? Can we do off-site consolidation where something is brought to a smaller distribution center and then someone with a hand truck or someone with a cargo bike can go and pick it up so that's one more truck off the street? And then what does safety look like, right? So in New York City, we do rely heavily on public transportation but now there's a different concern in terms of exposure to the virus so if people are going to be driving private cars more if people are going to be riding bikes more And we're going to be seeing higher numbers of freight deliveries. What does safety look like for both drivers and vulnerable roadway users? So I am concerned with all of those things in my portfolio and in my department in general. So your point is exactly that, right? We don't think about freight. We've been taught to not think about freight, but think about how much it impacts our entire lives. And then at another layer, as Black people, how does it impact our
1: lives? Awesome. Well, thank you for that little lesson, something I learned new today. So for you, Tiara, um, you're a policy Advisor for NYC Department of Small Business Services. How have you been able to measure love for advocacy in that role?
3: Prior to the pandemic, a lot of my work was focused on um, just like uh, NYSA policies and federal policies around WIOA funding, which is the Workforce Innovation Act which is how programs, our workforce development uh, programs are funded. So that was a part of my work. And it wasn't a lot of advocacy in that role. But since we are in this uh, post-George Floyd moment, I have built a racial equity platform on our uh, Microsoft Teams channel. So it's like equity in practice is what I named it. I went and grabbed some tangible tools off some organizations' websites that already do the work. And I'm just trying to put put forth the real racial equity lens that we need within our agency and then within my division specifically so that's like really what i've been doing so far as a policy advisor but prior to me being a policy advisor i started sbs in june of 2018 i didn't start this role into april of 2019 i was actually a neighborhood 360 fellow and that's where i really got to be an advocate because i was stationed on a court commercial corridor for 10 months and i was I organized small business owners. I brought to them a small business resource fair in connection with providing no cost and low cost services for small business owners. Um, I had other agencies come in and provide information for them because, like, New York is a is a system, <laughs> like, and you have to know how to work it to to survive. Like, and a lot of small businesses, specifically ones of color, just don't have the assets. Of, like, they don't have expediters on hand, and they don't. They don't have uh, employees that could go out and figure out every single regulatory issue for them. So my role as a Neighborhood 360 fellow was really just all about connecting my merchants to resources that are currently being offered, low cost and no cost, whether it's a legal service through BKA, which is Brooklyn Legal Service, I forget the full name of it, um, or whether it was the Commercial lease Assistance Program that's offered through my agency, or whether it was connected with the Department of Sanitation because we went through a phone ban. So what does that look like for small businesses? I help some of my businesses fill out a waiver for that and apply for different grants. So that's where I really got to really do advocacy. And I really like, I love doing advocacy and I love being a connector, especially with people who have been left out of conversations for so long. It was a really nice opportunity. And then I, from that, I became a policy advisor our workforce because I think that, Economic development is a full wheelhouse, and I actually want it to be a piece of it because, like, even with small businesses, like they have hiring needs, but actually getting qualified candidates because a small business is not just a restaurant, right? It's tax providers, it's attorneys, it's planning firms, and those businesses starting out, they're not gonna. An uh, intern is not really gonna look to go work at a small planning firm or a small accounting agency. When, in reality, like, our workforce system and our small businesses system should be working more together to help. And they do in New York. They really do. It, it is a place that you can do that. But a lot of small businesses don't actually know that. So that was something I appreciated about being a neighborhood business
1: fellow. Cool. Yeah. And your work is most definitely very important. So. Kudos to you and doing that. So both of you are Black female urbanists. What does that title mean to you?
2: That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I think that sometimes giving ourselves titles can be limiting, but then also sometimes they can be really empowering. I think it means that you are thinking about an environment and you're thinking about the people, right, that help make it urban, you're also thinking about the physical structure and the impact of the physical environment that also helps you define urban. I think it also means that you are looking at challenges of living in more urban environments and always thinking about how they can be, not necessarily solved in all cases, but addressed differently. I think you're also really excited about the future because innovation can often come from a more urban um, environment. But like I said, it can also sometimes be limiting. It depends on, on the crowd and who the audience is. So I'm not sure. It's not really, a to be quite honest, it's not really a term that I give myself. I usually say, I'm a Black urban planner, or I'll say I'm a first generation Black urban planner, or something to that degree to describe myself in another way. And I think it's because for me, the definition is so big and so small at the same time.
1: That's most definitely understandable. A lot of times people don't know what urbanist really means. So sometimes it's a hard, time, hard to put that in a particular box, but I can most definitely resonate with what you're saying
3: what does that title mean?
1: It's crazy because, like, I forget
3: often that I'm actually an urban planner. I, <laughs> I'm just trying to do the work. Like, I don't, don't call me, just call me Tierra And I just, so a few years ago, I was asked to write, like, a mission statement. And I wrote in my phone, in my memo, I looked back at it the other day, and it, it literally was, like, to eliminate the toxic inequities. Through land that are shown through land use patterns, education, and economic development, and some other words that I use. And I want to keep refining that every, I want to look at it more often, because ultimately being a Black urbanist, I guess that's what it would mean for me. is to eliminate and eradicate all of this toxic inequities that are literally causing PTSD in people that look like me.
1: I mean, the reason why I use the term urbanist, because it's sort of, brings a lot of different professions together in one bigger larger category so planners architects landscape architects sociologists those people of that realm who deal with people and space and place so um that's sort of why i use that larger term to bring all those together you know in one terminology so how can other black female urbanists or urban planners Use their expertise and knowledge base to push forward their agenda for equitable communities.
2: That's a big one. I think for me, the first step was realizing two key things. And it didn't happen. The realization didn't happen at the same time. The first one was realizing that my lived experience is expertise just because I didn't read something about how I grew up or how I participate or receive the world around me, um, doesn't mean that I don't know what I'm talking about. And the second thing that I realized, and to be honest, I've just more so gotten to that at this stage in my career is that being the only or a limited number of something is also a superpower. Right? Like being the black person, being the black woman in a conversation, in a room, in a project can also be a superpower. And so learning to turn those things on is really important in making a difference in your work. And I think that those two things lead to the key thing, which is feeling empowered. I've been at different stages of my career where I have not felt empowered many times, being an entry level person, many times being because I was the only of something, I was the Black person, I was the young person, the female, Um, and not getting power from that, and then not thinking that I could make any change. But once you're able to turn those things on and feel empowered, you start to see that advocacy and influence look very different. And you also have to Forgive yourself that you can't save the world all at one time. So it's really important to make the small strides count just as much as the big strides. So maybe you're not the commissioner at the end of the day who is at the press conference and signs all the checks, but maybe you're able to hire an intern. Maybe you're able to change language on a memo or the process in which community engagement happens. Maybe you're able to step up for someone else in a meeting or to push someone else's idea forward because you have authority and influence in a way that they don't. Maybe you are the one in the room to be able to ask those really uncomfortable questions. Like when we talk about communities, what community are we talking about right now? When we talk about budget, what money is real and what is fake? When we talk about equity, because in transportation that could mean a bunch of things, today in this conversation, what do we mean when we say equity? And so when you are in those spaces, and you are feeling empowered to asking those questions, that is advocacy. It can look very, very different. And so when you realize your experience, your lived experience is valid, when you realize that what may have counted against you before is your superpower, and when you realize that advocacy can look both small and big, I think that is when you start to feel empowered to do advocacy at different levels in your work.
3: I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I got so caught up in what Tiffany, she moved me. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, so the question is, how can other Black female urbanists use their expertise and knowledge base to push forward their agenda for equitable communities?
3: I would echo everything that Tiffany says, so definitely all of them, and then I would further say that, like, what has helped me is doing the additional reading. We are at a disservice going to PWI, Urban Planning Programs. I had to do a lot of work on the back end to discover the people that look like me because they want to teach us the Boutier and Garden Cities and Jane Jacobs. When, like, Jane Jacobs wrote a book, but she's not my queen. Like, my queen is Dorothy May Richardson because, like, not only did she, she had a high school diploma and she was just hired. Our tiredness led her and that's when advocacy happens when you just like fed up you snatching it all off what is happening around me and that's what she did and like she really organized her community made deals with people brought money and resources to her to her community like that's my queen, right and I and we we are at a disadvantage when we go to the CWI with the first institutions because they just do not give us this knowledge like at all and that's because you're going to study, and this is why, like, long term, I want to be a professor because I want the next set of. Because we could get a bunch of black kids to go to planning school, but what happens when they get in there and the representation is not a reflection? When you are speaking to young black folks about urban planning and they don't show up until a 1919 racial deed covenant as a perfect, that is a problem. And, and, like, when I was in planning school at the end of the semester, that's what I wrote my professor. Like, I would, you know, you do the evaluations. I said, this was a great class, except I didn't show up as a person into a 1919 racial covenant, which is very unfortunate because W.E.D. Du Bois had already done a study. Studies were being done on Black neighborhoods, the Philadelphia Negro, the Chicago study. Why weren't we taught that in planning schools? And those are literally geographical studies on Black living situations and how and if you go any further if you if you do more research you you get into the red line and how it really impacts the communities of color and then you get into the blockbuster and like i'm currently going back and forth because i'm reading hood feminism right now but i'm actually also reading race for profit which is all about that time period so race for profit, race for profit will fit right in between the color of law and evicted so it was that period in housing where people were being doing rent-to-own that was like I'm from Buffalo so like rent-to-own was big in Buffalo in the 70s 80s 90s so people were doing rent-to-own and people were doing a lot of what Dorothy Mae Richardson did was like bringing money into the community buying dilapidated houses and doing like more collective and group economics around home ownership so that's what I would tell any black Future urbanist is to do your additional reading if you don't have a choice. Like I didn't really, I was, I went to school, I paid out of pocket. I didn't really have an opportunity to go to an HBCU. But if I not having that opportunity made me want to teach at a PWY because I don't want another black woman, young black woman, or male or gender nonconforming coming into an institution and leaving out, not understanding that we we've been contributing to this field. So that's my piece on that. And I think to add on that,
2: if I can, Tara makes an excellent point. And what's even more beneficial to that is that our white counterparts can learn this material. Right, like black people especially, but black, brown, indigenous, other POC, it should not be their responsibility to both learn about their own history and teach people about their own history. That is too much work that you do not get an extra paycheck for, I will tell you that every day. So it is equally important that our white counterparts and other folks with other types of privilege are given that type of an education.
1: Yes, and I most definitely resonate with you, Tierra. I actually did some research back in Black History Month this this year, just searching like black urbanists and trying to find some information like who some of these people may be. It's very hard for me to find that information. I did put together a very long list and want to like delve more into that and maybe even, I don't know, write a book or something. I don't know one day about these people, but I think it is very important that we do have a representation in the field. We find out those who have put in the work back in our past that, you know, a lot of us don't know about and, you know, try to push their message forward. And also as it relates to, you know, having black professors at PWIs, I think I had one that wasn't in planning school and now my school does have one black professor but they've that should have been the case a long time ago honestly and um my thing is i do want to become a professor as well to you know bring that representation in the schools so i totally resonate with everything that you were saying okay so advocacy is something that everyone's talking about these days However, there are different levels of advocacy. Can you further explain those levels?
2: Sure. I alluded to it before. Um, I think folks often feel like, um, and I think even in this current movement, hey, I don't have a big title or I don't don't have my own nonprofit or I feel uneducated about how to help. And it can just look so different, like really something simple as asking questions about where your job posts job announcements is advocacy asking people well what questions can i help write the questions that we're using for the interview can i interview an intern can we change the requirements for positions right like for me urban planning also can be public administration, public policy, geography, GIS. There's so many degrees and also lived experience that can fill the same title. And it, even as a civil servant, it's, it's hard to get that across, but it is possible, right? And like I said before, asking questions, speaking up, I don't just assume that everybody knows what is being said and that we all have the same understanding of very basic characteristics because we don't. We all interpret in information very very differently I think the other thing for me is like and this definitely comes out of creating the conference is sometimes you just got to start the thing and that might be a little bit controversial because I think black people in particular have always had to start the thing but sometimes you just have to remind yourself like I'm just gonna do it like maybe there isn't a space for you at work to feel like you and some of your colleagues can have more deep discussions about race and how it impacts your work, book a conference room on a different floor for lunch and have that meeting. And then invite other people to that safe space and watch it grow. Start a conference, right? Start a podcast. But share your idea. You might not find the people in the room that you're with who agree with your thoughts, but I guarantee you someone in the next room will. And sometimes it's just getting it out there. And I often find, especially through creating a conference, is that it's much easier for people to get behind a thing than an idea. If you're going to plan something, if you're going to plan a protest, if you're going to have a podcast you now have this tangible thing to now pick up and show the next person and say this is what i want to do this is how I see advocacy, do you want to come? And now you have this tangible thing to now show the next person and gain support. So I think really, if anybody takes anything away from what I've said today, it's do not feel as though you have to get to a certain point in your career to make a difference or to be an advocate. It can start at the most basic level by even just asking the
1: questions that no one wants to ask. Awesome. So I want to ask you both this question. Can you briefly speak on the importance of advocating for policy changes? And what are some ways that planners can assist with that effort?
3: So, policy changes and planners, honestly, the way that policy works is that we really need, as planners, like we really need to make sure that what I'm going to do as a planner, I can't even speak for the whole community. But I'm just going to say what I'm going to do as a planner. What I'm going to do as a planner is post things on my Instagram about the different roles that different elected officials play. Because I think that is something that is missing out of the conversation. Like, if you still believe in the elected system, if you still trust the political system in any way, shape, or form, and these people are going to run. So I went as far as to go and look at legislation that has been drafted by people that are currently, we have an election on June 23rd. So I actually went in to look at all of my different people that's running and look at the incumbents and the legislation that they have put forward. Because I don't really, if you've been in this seat before a term, I don't care what you're telling me you go do this term. I'm looking at what you didn't do in all these other terms, because now I'm not voting for you. And I'm going to vote for the person that may do the things that he said he's going to do, because you've had 12 years to do these things, and you haven't done them. So thank you. You had your time, nice seeing you. So, what I plan on doing is actually, and it's one already out there, it's just like a, a little cheat sheet of like what each elected official does. But in New York, we have a few extra elected officials, like we have council members, we have these people, and so on and so forth, where every city doesn't have that. They may have a version of it, but New York specifically, we have council members, which are extremely important. We have community boards who don't have an actual voting power, but they do give okay's and stuff like that. And you need to be in the good graces of the community board. Who's sitting on your board? Who who is okay in everything in your community? So that's what I'm gonna do as a planner is I wanna continue to educate on our political system in New York City. I wanna continue to educate people on um, urban planet and how spatial relationships work. And I don't know if you've ever read Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, but in that book she specifically talks about it is, like Tiffany said, it is a bunch of small things, like advocacy and change starts with a bunch of small, a bunch of individuals changing the way they behave, right, their behavior and what they do. So it's just like, and I think it's also another book, I believe Michael Galwell wrote this book, and it's, it's about the tipping point, which is like, or, or blink, excuse me, blink or the tipping point. And it's all about how like one small thing creates a movement. So just being who I am continuously, continuously speaking up for myself, um, self-advocacy, and then systems advocacy. So like, that is when the policies passes, but how do we make the policies happen if we don't even know who the elected officials are that are writing our legislation? And then thinking about the existing legislation where I do think that this requires some type of critical analysis and thinking, where it's like a lot of stuff that's being done, a lot of organizing, you don't need this higher education to do that work. Like, you don't need it. And I love my, I love most of the organizers and advocates I went to, they've they they they've been said F the education system because it doesn't benefit them. It doesn't work for them. They go in there and the teachers belittle them. So that's a thing So But since I went through with it, I'm like, how can I help you? And the way that I could best help them is to actually look at legislation because I, I know how to read it and I know who's writing it and I'm willing to do that research. So that is what I'm going to do as a plan.
2: I think also, Tiara is absolutely right, absolutely. The the biggest thing that we can all do, even outside of planning, is educate ourselves what policies actually exist, um, and then how do we actually treat them, right? Because I think those actually might be two different conversations. Or rather, how do we apply them, not how do we treat them? Educate ourselves, educate our colleagues. We cannot assume that because we all have the same degree, that we all have the same level of education. I will tell you that is the farthest thing from the truth. I learn it every day. So, you know, you definitely need to educate yourself and need to educate others. I think some other things that maybe are more long-term is what about putting ourselves in leadership positions? Are we running for offices? Are we supporting people who are running for offices? Are we seeking jobs as policy advisors, as chiefs of staff, as deputies, where you have access to being a decision maker or folks who are decision makers and you have the ability to influence because everyone has influence. There's no way that a political leader makes a decision on their own. They gather information and have influence and then they make a decision. So where are we working? What are we aspiring to be? And also, are we sharing our ideas? Your point about using your Instagram is absolutely right. LinkedIn sees so many views IG, Twitter is huge. Ten years ago, no one would have ever thought that a tweet would be considered a professional quote in an article, right? But here we are. And look at all these other things that are emerging as technologies. You know, Zoom as a platform is pretty much free for the most part. How are you using that to your advantage? How are you getting your message, your voice, your call to action out there? But there is so much that we can do at the staff level, we need to go after and continue to go after, I should say, leadership positions because that's where the power is. And continuing to use your voice, for sure. There's you know, nothing more genuine than something said from the heart and then being able to share that with other people. Because I will tell you this, if you don't know now, you never know who is watching you work both for better and for worse. But, you know, to Tiara's point that she alluded to, you can inspire people. And so are you out there getting your message? Are you out there sharing about policy? Are you out there sharing your frustrations about policy that maybe you have to look at every single day? Because somebody might be inspired by your feelings on the matter, and and that's how change gets started.
1: I totally agree with both of you, especially your point, Tiffany, about, you know, running for these leadership positions i mean i tell people often that i think planners are really good advocates to be you know city council members and city managers and people in those positions because we understand how the city functions and how it works so i think that we are very good advocates for people in those positions so as we wrap up do you guys have any like last advice that you like to give to black planners as it relates to advocating during this time of unrest in society
2: I would say don't stop. Just don't stop. Whatever it is, don't stop. You being a planner is a revolution in itself. There aren't that many of us. There, just, there aren't. No matter which way you slice it, don't stop doing your work. Trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Ask the question. There's no simple question. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting and asked, what does that acronym mean? And three people gave me three different answers. And I'm sitting here like, so we were all assuming we had the same information. Don't stop doing the work. Take care of yourself. Take care of your mental health. Create your boundaries, especially during this time. So much is being asked upon us, asked of us during this time. And many of us are learning to put up boundaries to say no and to say yes to things that only serve us. But don't stop. You being a Black planner is a revolutionary act in itself. So in my opinion, the profession wasn't really set up for us to be here. Until your much earlier point, Tiara, about even trying to find books, or rather, Gigi, trying to find books written by planners, many of us weren't even given the title. We were doing the work. Black people were doing the work. You're absolutely right. Jane Jacobs was not the only person thinking about neighborhoods at that time, Black people lived in neighborhoods too. So we have been erased from history. So the fact that you are doing this work today is absolutely a revolution in itself.
3: And I just want to agree with Tiffany. And it's interesting that you said that about, I'm like, I wrote on my Instagram a long time ago, like the Underground Railroad was probably the most sophisticated wayfinding system of that time. And like Harriet Tubman was an urban, and not only was she a liberator, she was also an urban planner because she figured out a way to get black people free on land and water. (laughs) So you can't tell me that's not an urban planner. Like I am a, I will sing that to the death of me is that the Underground Railroad was the first sophisticated wayfinding instrument ever because it was, not only did it free people, it was done in secrecy. So like, come on now. Give us, give us our flowers while we're still here. What I would say to a last tip to give to any new urban planner or urban planner is to definitely stay in the work but also take care of yourself because times are hard and if revolutionaries like this, we're going to need all of our bodies and all of our minds. So we have to take care of our, you have to take care of yourself, and we have to take care of each other. I just really believe in being in community whether that's through economics, whether that's through what we're doing right now, this podcast. Being surrounded by Black women has been keeping me a little on my square because everything that's going on has completely knocked me off my square. So it's just like what has helped me is community. Stay in community. Stay with your ears to the ground. Listen to people. And because so often I think just the way that, because we have to be honest, we have been conditioned in colonialism. We have been conditioned in white supremacy. So, it's easy to become a professional and forget what is happening on the ground in neighborhoods. And this is why, like, one of my main things, especially as long as I'm living in New York, I don't know other places well enough to say, but long as I'm living in New York, in New Orleans too, I wanna live in New Orleans for a little bit at some point in my life. I'm always gonna live in a black neighborhood because that's like super important to me because I feel like since I still have fire left in my body and I have been allowed to receive a higher education and I've been, you know, worked, I don't even, I'm not even in my humblest. I'm saying it humbly. It's like, you write to me, people pay attention to you when you work at, I haven't looked for a job in years. All my last jobs have been like, I want you to come work with me. So like, stay, even in your advocacy, stay doing high quality, excellent work. And it's hard to say that because like, it's like these other people not doing high quality work and they getting a promotion, right? But if they want to walk around, but it shows, it shows when you're asked to answer a question and you don't have the language it shows that you're not really doing the work so daytime in the dark will in the light and dark will come for them and don't you worry about that you just stay focused on your work i
1: love it i love it so please provide your social media platforms and other ways that people can connect with you both
2: I guess the easiest way to find me is probably through DivCom. Ironically, I'm not really a social media person personally, but for the committee I am. So what are we on Twitter? Um, We're at DivCom, D-I-V-C-O-M-M. We're the same on Instagram as well. If you want to send me an email, um, you can send it to diversity at nyplanning.com org, I believe. Um and also if you just Google Tiffany and Taylor, I'm pretty sure my
3: website comes up and you can find me through there as well. You ladies are my PROs. I'm like the only urban planner that doesn't have a website. But anyway <laughs> my Instagram is my website. You can follow me on Instagram and I'm tiara and that's C I E R A. as in Marie and my last name Mac M A C K. And I'm the same name on Twitter. And I'm always posting about urban planning. I'm always posting about Black feminist theory. I want to write a book as well, Gigi. And I definitely wanted to write about Black urbanism as the unrest and the civil unrest continues. I'm really like thinking about writing the intersectionality between Black feminist theory, Black liberation, and urban planning. Because I think that urban planning leaves Black feminist theory out of the conversation. And Black feminist theory is the bed It's the core of Black liberation. So I really want to put that into words and into a book. So that's what I've been thinking about for the last two days. Literally, like, just two days. I was like, you know what? I need to do the intersectionality between these two because it's a connection.
1: Cool, cool. Yeah, so thank you guys for being on my podcast today, and I hope you guys have a good night.
2: You too. Thank you
1: so much for having me.
3: Thank you so much for having me as well. And I love sharing space with you all. Thank you. Tiffany, you know, you're my hero. And so are you, Gigi. I've been listening to your podcast. Thank you for everything that you do for this community. No
1: problem. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to be interviewed in a future episode, please head over to my website at ggtheplanter.com and select the interview tab. And you can request to be interviewed by me in a future episode.
0: Thanks for listening to the Urban Planners Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over and leave a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss out on an episode. If you would like to buy personalized urban planning gear and other products or are in need of some urban planning career coaching, please head over to ggtheplanner.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at GGThePlanner. Have a great week and we'll see you. Next episode...